This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello and a very happy Thursday afternoon to you. It certainly has got a little cooler in the south of the state this week. We've had those three uh, cold fronts come through and those chilly conditions might just have been enough for you to get your open fire up and running for the first time, well, in months really. It's just a lovely treat sometimes to sit around that open fire with a hot chocolate, maybe a glass of red wine... A really nice thing to do over the autumn and winter months. But I wonder how many more times you're going to be able to enjoy that over the next couple of months, couple of seasons. Because there is a concern that the availability of firewood for this year is really going to dry up pretty quickly. Talking about that in some more detail after news headlines at half past 12. And also... Having a look at Western Power and its priority projects, which seem to be really in the metropolitan area at the moment. So if you're in rural or regional parts of Western Australia and you've got a plan to expand your business, you need that little extra power, well, you're going to have to wait because there's a lot of projects going on in the city. Those stories to come here on the Country Hour this afternoon, 6 past 12. Well, Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud says Labor can't be trusted to allow the live sheep trade to continue if elected. The minister made the comments during a visit to Western Australia this week. He says a coalition government will continue to support the sheep trade if it wins power on the 21st of May, but Labor plans to get rid of it. We didn't blink when we had the Awasi. What we did was we fixed the industry. We fixed the regulatory framework to give confidence, to give truth and proof about what was happening on those boats. And the industry were mature enough to step up and to lead with me to make sure we can give confidence. Now, what the Labor Party is saying is they have a policy to phase out live sheep. That's going to cost millions, tens of millions of dollars here in Western Australia and jobs in Western Australia, not just on the boats, but right across the sector, whether it be in the transport industry, whether that be on farm. And they're going to reduce what farmers can get, the income that they can get. Now, we do it better than anyone else. Uh, We are weeding out those that do the wrong thing and the industry is working with us. But those that want to phase out this industry are phasing out an industry that is going to continue on. There is still demand for live animal exports, uh, not only on a cultural basis, but also on the basis that they don't have the storage facilities, the cold storage facilities. Uh, So it it comes as a food security issue for many of these countries. And so what the Labor Party is saying by they wanting to to remove live animal exports, what they're saying is they they have... They've placed a value on the animal welfare of an Australian sheep or, or cow over that from another country. We have a fiducial responsibility to stay and to get this right for animal welfare standards globally. And so we're backing farmers, we're backing the export industry, and they're not always happy with me because there's been regulatory costs imposed on it. But we, we've got to continue on this industry, and you've got a Labor Party that is now saying they're going to walk away from live sheep. And once you move away from live sheep, You're going to walk away from live cattle. I did request an interview with the Shadow Minister for Agriculture, Julie Collins, but she is not available. I was told, though, that Labor has no plans to change the live export of cattle 
and Labor will continue to support this important industry for Western Australia. I was also told Labor supports the continuation of the ban on live sheep exports to the Middle East. That's during the Northern Hemisphere summer. And the Labor Party will have a broad animal welfare policy that's going to be released in the coming weeks. Uh, That was the information I got from the Shadow Minister's office earlier today. I mean, it's only three weeks away from the federal election, so the sooner the clarity around the future of sheep exports and the policy the Labor Party continues um, will take to the election, the sooner the better, I guess, that comes through. Nine past 12, the Federal Agriculture Minister, David Littleproud, also says that Labor doesn't want to talk about live animal exports because its position hasn't changed since the last election. That's the reality is, is they will still continue to phase out live sheep. That is their policy uh, and they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to be honest to Western Australians. And Western Australians are the ones that don't cop this the most. They're the ones, the farmers out there, the, the actual trucking companies. It's not just that the exporters are going to hurt. There's a whole supply chain and they're not being honest with Western Australians. They're not looking them in the eye and saying, we're going to support this. And what we're saying is, I've got, I've got a track record of not panicking, shutting down a live export industry overnight because of one TV show. That was real. And instead of just panicking, we acted and we reformed. And we've given confidence to the community we can do this better than anyone else. Because you're still paying the bill. You're still paying the bill for what Labor did last time they shut down live exports after a TV show. You're paying over $900 million in compensation to those families because of a rushed decision by the Labor government when they were last in power and trashed our reputation with Indonesia because they panicked without calmly, methodically working through reforms that gives confidence to Australian Australians right across the country that we do this better than anyone. And animal welfare is at the core of how we produce Australian agricultural product. 11 past 12, the Federal Agriculture Minister also slammed Labor's proposal to dump the agriculture visa. Federal Labor announced it will axe the coalition's visa and develop a new system within the existing Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme, saying a different approach is needed. David Littleproud says Labor's solution is a rebadging of an existing program, and it's now unclear if Labor's plan will include workers from Vietnam. Now there's some confusion because within a matter of hours, Christine Keneally has come out and said, oh, no, but hold on, we're going we're gonna to honour those, those agreements we have with Vietnam. So I, I, they're not coherent on this policy. I mean, this is an actual cluster. Uh, we don't know where the Labor Party sits. There's no official word out, will they, will they actually respect the agreement we have with Vietnam? It, it's just been on-the-run policy by Christina Keneally. I mean, what she's done and what the Labor Party has done is just rebadge the Pacific scheme. Now, that only goes to unskilled workers. The ag visa goes to skilled and semi-skilled workers. And what this means is, is if you take away, you take away the opportunity for Australian farmers to have the workforce they need, they make investment decisions now about what they plant. And you're not going to plant unless you know you can pick it and put it on, on the shelf. And if there's not a supply there, what happens is there's a reduced supply, up goes your price at the supermarket. And so your cost of living here in Perth, right in Broome, in Darwin, right across the country is going to go up because farmers are making investment decisions now not to produce. And so supply goes down, your price goes up. David Littleproud was also asked about how a coalition government will assist exporters, particularly grain exporters, to find new markets as those trade tensions with China continue. 
Well, we've already done it. In fact, we sent our first boatload into, uh, of barley into Mexico uh, that's going into their beer. We've also got uh, access in now into Saudi Arabia for 750,000 tonnes of barley. So we didn't sit quietly by. We've actually already acted on it. We put over $70 million into making sure that we're getting better market access, and my agricultural councils on the ground have been able to get that. We've also got better access with India and Pakistan and Nepal in terms of uh, fumigation being able to be done on a boat rather than in-country, reducing costs. So we haven't stood still, but the reason we, we, we've had success is not just because of what the government's done. It's because of what we produce here. Uh, we're not a bulk producer of commodity. We're actually a high-end producer, and so it's sought after. And while China might have turned their back on it, um, the rest of the world hasn't. And that's why all we've got to do is put that environment infrastructure in our farmers. The product speaks for itself, and that's why we've been able to send boats left and right rather than sending them to China. Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud, who is visiting Western Australia this week. 13 past 12. As I mentioned earlier, I have requested an interview with the Shadow Minister, Julie Collins. She was not available today and really interested to get clarity from the Labor Party on its position, its policy position, especially when we're talking about live sheep exports. The word from the Shadow Minister's office is, well, the party's yet to announce its policy on live sheep exports, but it plans to have a policy announcement in the coming weeks. And um, we're only, what, three weeks away from the federal election? How appropriate do you think that is? Let me know on the text, 0448 This on the text from Peter. Belinda, David Littleproud is quite correct. It's the same here with WA Labor. Their policy platform is very clear. The intention is to, in inverted commons, commas, transition to domestic slaughter processing. That's weasel words for ban the trade. They have no plan, is only code for no date set. Too much deception, says Peter. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to have your say this afternoon. Quarter past twelve. A new policy for two hundred extension offices to help farmers access carbon markets is being pitched by independent MP and member for Indi, Helen Haynes. The $32 million plan, which has been costed by the Parliamentary Budget Office, would see a network of offices nationwide to help one in five Australian farms assess their carbon emissions and take advantage of new markets. Helen Haynes says the plan will help farmers get to net zero emissions. Farmers truly understand that good, sustainable environmental processes on their farm increase productivity. They're keen to get involved uh, with carbon markets, but there's just no clear pathway and technical advice to help them get there. So uh, I've spoken to the NFF about this and many, many farmer groups. And what I'm proposing is uh, funding for that technical expertise on ground uh, extension offices that would assist our farming communities apply the latest science and uh, be able to access export markets uh, get involved with uh, lowering their emissions and uh, getting to net zero. So effectively, how would it work? What's the plan here? 
Yeah, so what I'm, I'm proposing, Warwick, is that we establish a network of 200 agricultural extension offices. They'd be located in regional hubs across Australia and they'd work with individual farms or farmer groups uh, on implementing emissions reduction strategies. Now, that could be uh, applying uh, technologies around uh, carbon sequestration. It could be around assisting farmers uh, as they transition to new technologies with farm machineries. Uh, but really, it is about working with individual farmers to establish a plan on how to get there. There's lots of eagerness uh, to get engaged with this. Um, we know farmers are concerned about tariffs being slapped on them by uh, by uh, overseas um, trading partners. Uh, they don't want that to happen. Uh, so they need that technical expertise to help them transition. We've done that this in the past as we've uh, transitioned to, to new farming practices um, and we need it now for this. Yeah, usually agricultural extension has been the, the realm of the states, but you're pitching it for this case to be a federal government program. Why? Yes, yes, I am, Warwick. Well, it is our federal government um, that has uh, committed now to zero net emissions. So uh, we need our federal government to, to lead in this space and provide the support that farmers want and need uh, so that they can truly get on board with this. There's a desire to do it, um, but there is a knowledge gap in applying the evidence to practice. And this is where extension has traditionally worked so well uh, with farming communities. You're, you're an independent. As such, you don't have a government behind you. So is it fair to say that your plan, albeit might be, have support from farming groups, but may never happen? Look, I think what uh, is really powerful about being an independent and representing uh, rural and regional seats such as I do uh, is that I can bring positive policy solutions to curly, uh, curly problems. But do they um, listen to you what, though? What's your experience well, been the last few years? Uh, they listen to me very closely, actually, Warwick, and uh, we're coming into a situation in, a, in an election where there is a complete drought of policy ideas, actually, um, from the federal government. I mean, we've got uh, got the National Party right now fighting amongst themselves, fighting with their coalition partners about zero net emissions um, without actually coming up with any positive policy uh, solutions to assist the agricultural industry to get to where they want to go. We've got a, a federal government that's saying to the ag industry, uh, we want you to produce $100 billion worth of produce by 2030, but no clear pathway on how to get there. I'm about positive policy solutions. I'm about working with farmers, listening to what they need and taking those to government. And I think, uh, again, what we're seeing from the National Party is no ideas on this, uh, just an argument about about climate change, really. What's the cost of this? Yeah, so I've had this uh, fully costed by the Parliamentary Budget Office, Warwick, and uh, this would come in at $32 million a year. And uh, over a course of four years, that would assist a minimum of 16,000 farmers. Uh, so that would ultimately directly support one in five Australian farms. So this is a policy that's been well thought through. It has the support of farmers. It has the support of the National Farmers Federation. And it can return value um, into the Australian economy and help us get to net zero. Independent member for Indi in northeast Victoria, Helen Hayes with Warwick Long. 19 past 12, a few of your texts coming through on live sheep exports after hearing some of the comments from Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud earlier in the hour. And he's just calling out the Labor Party to uh, clarify its position on the future of live sheep exports. The Labor Party, the Shadow Minister's office anyway, saying that um, a policy 
on the future of the sheep trade is to come in the next few weeks in the lead up to the federal election. This from Wayne, as a substantial sheep producer, I know David Littleproud is overstating the benefit of live export to the agricultural sector. A forward-thinking government would assist with transition away from live export and towards value adding in Australia, creating increased jobs and value says Wayne. This from Brian in Tambalup. It's only one federal seat which will be impacted by a ban on the live trade and never have a hope of winning it, but may pick up a few cuddly votes in urban seats. And this from Michael. Live export of animals should be banned. Process them here. You can have your say on the text 0448 you're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasketti on ABC Local Radio WA. To the north of the state now and traditional owners in WA's West Kimberley are welcoming the declaration of a new national park. The Wallabitty National Park spans 16,000 hectares covering areas of the Margaret River east of Fitzroy Crossing on Gooniandi country. Gooniandi elder Claude Carter says it's an important step forward for his people and he hopes the park will create jobs and protect river systems from future development. Feel happy now, yeah. Because mainly the rivers, it's like life to us. You know, we always say water always bring life back to the people, to the animal, and to the land. And mainly the the Margaret River. Why we wanted national park in the Margaret River just to get away from from damming and mining. You know, that was the main one. And on top of that, you might see a river, but a lot of these river got names along this Margaret River, and that's where a lot of a lot of uh, people come out from there, from Carnation, out of the river too. And it was us to put that national park for all them reason. And we live on top of the river and there's, there's other people down the river. There's other different tribes. This river goes into Fitzroy River and from the Fitzroy, it come out to, to Derbyside, to Willey. And we were thinking that if, we, if a mine get up, or we blocked it, put a dam up here, it's going to really affect the rest of the people. So really it wasn't about us more, it was about other people too. We end, was thinking about them again. Pastoralists still are hoping to get access to surface water. What do you make of that? What do you think? Well, that, that'll be in stage two. We, we only got stage one, and, and with stage two, that's, that's when we've got to be talking to partial station and we got a lot of respect for station. We know they are business people. We just got to try to work with them and, and make, it, make it happen too, you know. Guniandi Elder Claude Carter with Jessica Hayes. The Guniandi Aboriginal Corporation will jointly manage the National Park with the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions. Guniandi Ranger Coordinator and Traditional Owner Russell Junior Chestnut says he's excited at the prospect of expanding the Ranger program. So the, with the new National Park, there will be more jobs, uh, meaning that there will be more rangers also. So our team will expand and collaborate with the National Park Rangers. And, you know, like we have a, we have a really big, big country, the Guniandi country, to us. It's our own nation to our people. So we have our boundaries and borderlines. And when it, comes to look, when it comes to looking after country, you know, we have a lot of country to cover. So the more rangers we have, you know, the more better we can look after our country. Yeah, I'm looking forward to where this is going to go. You know, as we're 
has it been promised we're going to have more better access to country, meaning roads will be graded and stuff at the moment. We still get to country, but the tracks are just tracks, they're not roads, they're like really rugged and, you know, we still get there. We sort of love the adventurous four-wheel driving that we do to get to country, but, you know, now with the National Park, uh, there'll be more resources, many machinery and stuff to help our, our roads and stuff get better, so, so elderly and stuff, you know, can get there quicker rather than on an old rough track and a, an old four-wheel drive, all that sort of stuff, so, um, as well as protecting areas more. Like a lot of this boundary of the National Park will be fenced off and just a lot more uh, than what they're offering us. Guniandi Ranger Coordinator and Traditional Owner Russell Junior Chestnut. 24 past 12. Well, while the new National Park protects the river from damming or development, pastoralists hope there will still be opportunities for water harvesting during river floods. GoGo Station Development Manager Phil Hams is still hopeful he'll receive approvals to use surface water from the river system for irrigation to grow fodder for cattle. Well, we get to see what the final determination is by um, the, the parks. We're certainly, uh, we're certainly um, in a negotiating situation. Um, that's ongoing at the moment and um, we and I'm and I'm not only talking about GoGo but there's many others including uh, uh, properties owned by Aboriginal corporations and others that are keen to uh, do some development it'll never be a massive amount of development it'll be a minimal amount of development just to uh, enhance the existing cattle industry the cattle industry is um, um, held back by the fact that we haven't got that feed at on hand um, in those months when we need it. How would you feel if the National Park drew a line under any aspirations to use water out of the Fitzroy? It, it can be approached in other directions. You can, you can have uh, water harvesting, uh, and there's two or three other options, and there certainly is subsurface water, but the limited subsurface water. But I, I think there's uh, quite a few ways of, of dealing with it and I, I think national parks will um, be um, understanding. We've got, to, we've got to negotiate and work our way through it and come up with a, come up with a situation where it's a win-win, get an economy and get some jobs going and opportunities for people. And I think it can be done. I don't, I don't believe that common sense uh, will put us in a situation where opportunities are denied, reasonable opportunities, because we've got a national park going through. There's still a lot of discussion to go through. GoGo Station Development Manager Phil Hams with Jessica Hayes. If you want to read more about the story, it's online for you now. Just head over to the ABC Kimberley website, or if you just want to search it up, ABC Kimberley Water, Environment, Fitzroy. Just put those words in your search engine and you should find Jess's story. That's ABC, Kimberley Water, Environment, Fitzroy, and it should pop up on your search. 27 past 12, not far away from an update from the newsroom and then checking out the four-day forecast during the cross to the Bureau of Meteorology. Just before that, though, better mobile and broadband coverage could soon be coming to a farm near you. Minister for Regional Development, Agriculture and Food, Alana McTiernan, is in Geraldton today announcing there's $48.6 million of funding on the table for increased regional mobile and broadband coverage. She says there's a range of ways the money can be spent, from the Kimberley in the north 
to the state's south coast. The mobile black spots, for example, which is now part of this round two digital connectivity, there's a process where we look at what's on offer, what the community's needs are, and we prepare a list of projects that we think are suitable for funding. We then submit that to the Commonwealth and they make a decision about which of those they would also be prepared to fund. In things like Digital Farm, we, for example, went out and asked, and we it was a project that went over all of the Southwest Land Division, the Agricultural Zone, and the horticultural areas of Kununurra and uh, Carnarvon, and we said to communities, well, who wants, who's prepared to come forward? And we had companies like Node One Logic IT come forward and uh, working with their local community put forward for that. So it's it's it depends on the project, but we've got a technique that's been developed over years for the the mobile phone black spot project and then we have another process for things like digital farm and it depends to some extent on who in the community is prepared to get themselves organised and put forward a submission. Minister for Regional Development, Agriculture and Food, Alana McTiernan, speaking in Geraldton today. 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Off to the ABC's newsroom now for an update with Herlin Corr. Good afternoon, Belinda. WA's Tourism Minister says the removal this Friday of many of Western Australia's COVID-19 restrictions will make it easier to attract visitors to the state. Roger Cook has announced the International Festival of Football will be headlined by two exhibition matches involving four English Premier League teams at Perth Stadium in July. He says removing G2G passes will mean there's one less hurdle for travellers to worry about. WA has today recorded 8,889 new cases of COVID-19. Seven more people with the virus have died, dating back to March the 29th. They were men and women aged from their 70s to 90s. And the federal opposition is demanding briefings from Home Affairs Minister after she suggested the signing of a controversial security pact between China and Solomon Islands have been timed to coincide with the federal election campaign. Karen Andrews made the comments when questioned on the threat the deal posed to Australia's national security. The Shadow Home Affairs Minister says the Minister has a responsibility to share any intelligence briefings with the opposition. And Belinda, there'll be a full bulletin at one o'clock. Thank you so much for that update, Herlin. It is 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour. To come between now and that bulletin at one o'clock today, off to Mount Barker. Tracy Kilner will be along going through the results of the Mount Barker cattle market for you today. Also, concerns about how much firewood is going to be available over the next couple of seasons, autumn and winter. It's quite nice to sit around an open fire at home on occasion, if you can be bothered lighting it up, (laughs) getting it all ready. Um, About 150,000 tonnes of mainly Jarrah firewood is sort of used through Perth and southern parts of Western Australia. But there are these concerns that it's going to dry up pretty soon. Talking about that shortly... And also concerns today that Western Power is prioritising projects in the Metro Perth area. And those of you who are wanting to expand regional businesses are just on the back burner. And you're just going to have to wait until those projects in the city are done 
before getting around to yours. That's to come between now and the news at one and in a moment off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Seven to one. This is the country hour on the ABC right across Western Australia. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Luke Huntington is on deck this afternoon. How's it looking across the southwest land division this afternoon, Luke? Yeah, well, we did see um, a weak cold front uh, move across the southwest land division uh, this morning. So it's uh, pretty much over sort of um, northern and eastern parts at the moment, but it is just about run its course now. So we are only seeing um, some light showers associated with that, um, most likely over the um, southwestern parts of the wheat belt and into the Great Southern at the moment. And after that goes through, we'll just be left with some onshore flow about the south coast. Um, they'll probably keep uh, getting sort of a few showers along that area and also just along the central west coast as that front uh, breaks up as well. Um, we've seen probably 2 to 10 millimetres with this front and only light falls are expected uh, now. Um, the sort of the dominant pattern is now going to be a ridge developing uh, pretty much over southern parts of the state uh, for the remainder of the week. Um, that means temperatures are going to get pretty low tomorrow morning, so we could see uh, temperatures fall uh, below two degrees over western parts of the Great Southern and into southwestern parts of the Wheat Belt. So there is just a small chance of some uh, light frost in that area for early tomorrow morning, um, but otherwise um, pretty clear for the uh, southwest land division, just apart from the south coast, as I mentioned where they could get um, some light showers in the onshore flow. Uh, as we head into Saturday, pretty similar conditions. Uh, the ridge uh, continues to dominate. We'll see another cold morning again over southern parts, but uh, it'll probably be a little bit warmer, so the frost potential is uh, less likely on uh, Saturday. As we head into Sunday, again, very little change with the pattern. Another cold morning, um, and there could just be just a light shower around the southwest coast uh, between Augusta and uh, Albany. Uh, Monday is a little bit different. We do have a weak cold front uh, coming up from the southwest. So, um, again, it's pretty weak, so it's going to dissipate quickly as it heads inland, and most of the shower activity will be um, along that south, south coastal district into the southwest and into the far southern parts of the Great Southern. Again, it's only probably rainfall around one to two millimetres. So for the, for the for the agricultural areas through the wheat belt and that type of area, they'll miss out, unfortunately, on this front. Um, and then that'll contract away later, later in the day. So uh, for the agricultural areas at the moment, uh, we're probably seeing the last of the showers uh, for quite a while at this stage. All right, moving into northern and eastern parts, how's it looking? Yeah, over the north of the state, we are seeing a cloud band uh, extending right through from the Pilbara right into the interior. 
And we are seeing some light showers, but it's mainly confined to uh, the coastal parts near the Pilbara. And uh, we're not seeing too much rainfall uh, with that today. Uh, the cloud band may thicken up a little bit uh, tomorrow, so more of a chance of getting some showers through the Pilbara region and into the south interior. Uh, probably the heaviest falls will be along that Pilbara coast uh, between Onslow and Port Helland. Uh, that, those guys may get to 2 to 10 millimetres tomorrow and then probably less than 5 throughout the remainder of the Pilbara and into the interior. Uh, the cloud band weakens a little bit on uh, the sort of the Saturday period, so any showers will be sort of west of uh, Carafa near the coastline and pretty light pretty much light falls. Um, but we do have some um, possible showers and thunderstorms returning to the far northern uh, Kimberley during the afternoon and evening. Uh, by Sunday, uh, those showers and thunderstorms over the northern Kimberley could continue during the afternoon and evening. And that cloud band over the sort of the western Pilbara will continue just with some light showers embedded with that. Um, and then finally heading into Monday, um, those showers and thunderstorms will clear from the uh, Kimberley and that cloud band will still continue to dominate f through the western Pilbara and probably extend into the northeastern Gascoyne and then back into the western interior. Again, only expecting uh, light falls. And the warnings this afternoon, Luke? Uh, the only warning we have is a strong wind warning and that's for the south coast. Perfect. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. 23 to 1. Checking the rainfall figures now. The last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and 5 mils and over. In northern and eastern forecast districts, in the Gascoyne, Steep Point had 6. The Goldfields, Laverton Aero 5 and Norseman Aero 14. The Eucala Air 5. Mundrabilla Station 6 and Red Rocks Point had 8. Into the southwest land division now, the central west, Alanooka 6, Geraldton 10 over two days, Durian Bay had 6 and Northampton had 6. In the lower west, Bindoon 5, Gingin West 5, Jandicott Aero 5, Mushay 5, Perth Airport had 8 and the metro area 7, Tamala Park 7, Wanneroo 20 and that's it. For the southwest of the state, Beadlup 12, Bridgetown 5, Bunbury 6, Cape Lewin 5, Cape Naturalist 13, Chapman Hill 6, Kawaram up 7, Darden up 5, Donnybrook 6, Doyle Road 6, Four Acres 13, Harvey 11, Jindong 7, Carrydale 11, Logebrook 8, Majumup 6, Margaret River 11, Million up also 11. Mount William, 10, Mile Up, 13, Quinnan Up, 10, Rosabrook, 10, Scott River, 7, Shannon, 13, Stars Tower, 6, Vass, 5, Walpole Forestry, 31, Warner Glen, 7, Willie Abrup, 7, and Yanmar had 8. In the southern coastal region, Albany, 20, and Albany Airport, 16, Chain Beach, 20, Chillin Up, 7, Dalyup Park, 28. Denmark is 16, Denmark 26, Erin Air 16, Esperance had 20, Esperance Aero 26, King River 20, Mini Peaks 16, Metla 6, Mount Barker 14, Narracup West 8, Oakmarsh Farm 19, Pleasant Valley 20, Ravensthorpe 2, Salmon Gums 8, Stirling South 8, Tamar 17, The Duke had 19, Warrajarra 5 and Windrush 11. 
The Central Wheat Belt, Mount Walker 13 and Yilgarn South 11. And the Great Southern, Allen Rocks 15, Cranbrook 6, Holt Rock 15, Hyden 12, Lake King 31, Magenta Dam had 5 and Mount Madden East had 10 in the gauge. 20 to 1. G'day, this is Hamish McTaggart from Vigimire Station and this is the Country Hour on the ABC. One of the state's largest firewood suppliers says his business is running out of firewood and the state government's upcoming ban on native timber logging will only make the situation worse. Each year... People in Perth and southern parts of Western Australia use around 150,000 tonnes of mainly Jarrah firewood, which is from sourced scrap or as a byproduct of hardwood timber production. Bunbury Firewood Managing Director Jeff Lowton usually sells 15 to 20,000 tonnes of firewood each year. This year, he's only got access to 8,000 tonnes to sell. Supply is so tight, he says people should consider finding other ways to heat their homes. We know that uh, log supply has been difficult to procure this year. The problem that we have been a firewood producer is that we need to receive wood in the off-season, which is through the summer period, so the wood has enough time to dry. And subsequently, we need the summer to dry that wood. So the issue that we have at the moment, not having firewood for this winter, is an issue that certainly has developed over the last year or so. What happened eight months ago that made this issue worse for you? Well, the industry has had difficulty with wood supply, and I guess the government is aware of that through a number of their agencies. Forest Products Commission is one, and certainly the Minister is well aware of those issues. I've brought that up with him as well. Uh, You know, wood flow has been slow and difficult to obtain. Um, And of course, as we move into the end of 2023, when the industry somewhat comes to cessation, I know there's talk that there'll be firewood available, but if we're having trouble supplying wood now, I really have difficulty to see where it's going to be come 20, end of 23 and beyond that point. So do you anticipate this supply issue will keep happening? I see the supply issue will continue at its current, well, at its current level probably for the next 12 months and then dramatically drop away. The difficulty is that we're not getting any leadership from anybody that can give some forecast of what firewood log supply will look like after 23. And so for people in search of firewood, what do you think they'll have to do? Well, they can probably do a couple of things. They can go out into the forest and rake and pillage that um, because it'd be difficult to control people doing that. Um, buy wood while it's still available. We believe that we will be empty of firewood by early to mid-June or go and buy an electric heater or a gas heater or a bigger rug. I think everyone would accept that timber is a renewable resource 
if it's a renewable resource, okay, I accept the fact that some people may not like a bit of smoke that's generated from burning a fire, but you do have to remember that if you're going to use gas or electricity, that is not a renewable resource. There is a lot of people that are extremely frustrated, along with ourselves, you know, smaller family businesses that only rely on firewood. We supply a lot of wood into the local nurseries throughout Perth and they rely on firewood to sustain their business through winter when people aren't really doing that much gardening. They won't have any resource for that as we move into the latter part of this winter. Bunbury Firewood Managing Director Jeff Lowton with Georgia Hargreaves. 16 to 1. And if you missed the Country Hour earlier in the week on Tuesday, it was I did have the Forestry Minister Dave Kelly on the Country Hour to talk about the availability of firewood uh, when the state government's ban on native timber logging comes into effect in 2024. Dave Kelly was confident there would be an ongoing supply and he pointed to ecological thinning as a wood source. And he also said there was a government support package which would pay firewood processors $50,000 if they wish to exit the industry after 2024. John Clark is a WA forestry consultant. He doesn't think forest thinning and land clearing from mining will provide enough wood to fill the firewood market. Bauxite mining, which um, happens to a large extent in our northern Jarrah forest, south and east of Perth, that will continue. And the salvage harvesting by the Forest Products Commission will produce ten or 15,000 tonnes of, of saw log and a larger quantity of low-grade wood for firewood and, and for charcoal purposes, but nowhere near enough. Um, so the only other source is ecological thinning, which is it is being looked at in some detail at the moment, but we won't know the extent, until the next forest management plan comes out. Are there alternative sources of wood that would be suitable to fill that gap to come in in place of burning Jarrah? Not really. Um, private property, perhaps, in the in the southwest, the large area of the southwest, there is a, a lot of native forest on private property, uh, and a landowner could apply to DWER for a permit to thin out his forest, manage it sustainably, which would produce perhaps some soil log and, and firewood, but the hurdles that a landowner has to overcome to get a what is called a clearing permit, which is a silly term really, for thinning, sustainable harvesting, is very, very difficult. You know. From what you're saying, John, when do you think we might start seeing a shortage of firewood in Perth? I would not be surprised if we see some shortages this, this coming winter. In the next few months, I know um, some major wholesalers that are sending wood out their door in road trains at the moment at the rate of knots and predict that they will run out of their stocks by June this year. And that's even after putting prices up. Um, I know the demand for firewood generally, especially since COVID started in 2020, has rocketed, probably because so many people were staying home and thought, oh, let's go and bake some bread, let's let's buy a wood heater, let's buy a pizza oven. So the demand shot up and it has, it has maintained itself at that high level to this very day. So look, in summary, Joe, I'm very worried as to where our wood sources will come from in the future, our firewood sources. The logging ban that was announced on the 8th of September last year uh, by the McGowan government was just a thought bubble that came out of the blue. Really, this, this logging ban announcement, it's more or less telling us, oh, if you want timber, and we all want timber for a whole host of reasons, if you want it, we'll go and get it from overseas. You know, let's import it. Let's import it from some tropical rainforest. It, it's just nonsensical. 
I'm very, very disappointed in the McGowan government's logging ban announcement and the ramifications that it'll take some time before we all realise what they mean. They will wake up on a cold morning, they'll go down to their local garage or into Bunnings or ring up their local fire supplier and they'll say, oh, sorry, we're out, we're out, we've run out. Forestry consultant John Clark with Joe Prendergast. 12 minutes to one and if you like to pay a few dollars and go and collect your own firewood, John was saying that most of that wood on the ground is from the crowns and branches trees commercially harvested five years ago. So that option's not going to be there forever either by the sounds of things. About 150,000 tonnes of Jarrah is burnt by households in WA with an additional 150,000 tonnes used by making charcoal by a silicon metal manufacturer. Opposition Forestry Minister Steve Martin says small firewood businesses will be forced to leave the industry. Uh, I've been hearing for weeks, in fact months, that the firewood suppliers won't have enough logs to get them past the middle of this year. So the way the firewood sector works, they don't cut down logs now and then get them to a fireplace uh, for this winter. Those logs have to be uh, cut down probably some months, probably last year, and then stored and dried. Uh, And the firewood sector have been telling the government for months that they are running out of logs. I was contacted yesterday while the Country Hour interview was still running by a firewood provider that they were desperately short of logs and expected to have nowhere near enough to get through this season, let alone future years. So, I mean, what's going to happen then if if they can't get enough supply? Well, I imagine some of those smaller firewood businesses will probably go out of business. They'll go broke or they'll get some sort of small compensation from the government. If there's not enough supply and you rely on a wood heater, um, you'd be very nervous about what the future holds. Uh, Right across Western Australia, that supply of firewood is in grave doubt. Uh, the firewood suppliers have run a good, steady business for many, many years with a with a reliable supply of firewood that has been declining from the uh, Forest Products Commission in recent years, and now we have this situation this year in particular under the old forest management plan, by the way, which is still in existence, where they don't have enough to get through the winter. So, if we can't source firewood locally, where will it come from? I don't know about the economics of importing it. I think that would be very doubtful. So uh, it will be forcing people to, to move to other forms of heating, I'd imagine. That is Shadow Forestry Minister Steve Martin with Georgia Hargreaves. There's more on the story for you online right now. Just search ABC Firewood Supply and you can read through the detail. 10 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And a couple of texts through after listening to that story about concerns that the state might run out of firewood this season. And this from Peter in Meriden, who says, a huge question now arises. The silicon plant at Kemerton uses Jarrah in the production of the silicon. Are they going to get a special permit to harvest trees to keep the plant going? And this from Margaret from Walpole. Will the state government commit to the banning of imported firewood? This seems to be our only option coming up and will be a disaster for the planet. Uh, your thoughts, most welcome. Shoot them through on the text 0448-922-604-91. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Tracy Kilner along shortly. She's out at 
Mount Barker today at the market, keeping an eye on how the cattle are selling. I think it's just over 500 head yarded today. So pretty similar to the previous sale last week at Mount Barker. Tracy along shortly with those details. First, though, to Albany now, where a strawberry grower and processor says he's been waiting more than a year for Western Power to assess his site for expanded power allocation. Neil Handesai runs WA's only commercial freeze dryer, which is used to process fruit from right across the state. He says demand for freeze-dried fruit has quadrupled, but he can't meet that demand until he buys more commercial generators or secures three-phase power through the grid. He says the whole process is taking up a lot of time and a lot of money. Pretty much started 18 months ago, spent upwards of about $8,000 just to get the information together that they wanted. And since then, it took us probably four months for them to do a survey and, and a feasibility study, which we are paying for. So it wasn't until July 2021 that we signed a document which said that in 90 days we'll have an answer and we still don't have an answer. Run me through exactly what it is that you would like Western Power to be doing. They, you said a feasibility study hasn't even been conducted in more than a year. What exactly is holding that up? Uh, they're staffing levels. They're currently building a brand new facility in Albany. I don't think they've got any more staff to go in there, more equipment in there, but not staffing. Those staffing, I believe, are working on government priorities, which is pretty much Metronet. And so you were saying that you'd been already working with a number of customers to get freeze-drying expanded in WA. Can you run me through exactly which sorts of products you'd be looking to make and just what options are available to do that work at the present? We predominantly grow strawberries. We, we, we do a few other things, but we're doing cabinge, uh, kakadu plum, the banana growers in Carnarvon are really keen to, to develop a lot more in that space. We've done a few trials in there. We do truffles in truffle season. Process is expensive, uses a lot of power. You want to use products that are basically have a waste, so it's a food waste. So for us, it saves us 5%, 10% of our produce. We're doing something like 20 tonne of strawberries through our machine a year. So the machine takes a period of time, so you can't speed it up. Um, but you can add more machines and make it work and you can do more capacity. So we're saving food going into the, into the tip, basically. That 20 tonne, is that the freeze-drying strawberry capacity you're currently working at, or what are you looking at specifically? So the strawberries are 90% water. Sadly, when we freeze-dry it, we end up with, out of 80 kilos in a batch, we end up with 8 kilos of freeze-dried. So, so I'm talking about the wet product. Are there alternatives for those businesses to freeze-dry their products at the moment? Uh, no, we're the only commercial freeze-dryer in the state. So either that or send it over east, which is, you know, food miles. We, we want to grow. Neil Handesai, who runs Handesai Strawberry Farm and a commercial freeze-drying business. Well, Neil's not the only one in regional Western Australia calling on Western Power to get a move on. Opposition leader Mia Davies says it's a statewide problem because Western Power is diverting its staff to projects in the city. We are told that it's because there is simply no resourcing for this within Western Power and that their priorities are being directed towards Metronet and major government projects, leaving private businesses that are seeking to expand or start in regional Western Australia struggling to navigate the process. It's simply not good enough. How many businesses are affected? Is it just hand size? 
Now, I'm told, uh, having spoken to a number of the consultants, that there are at least five and probably more. That's one consultant uh, working with businesses in the region, uh, and they are certainly expressing their frustration that something that should be an easy process to navigate has become more complex, and they are absolutely clear it's because the priority is not for businesses like Handicides, and it's also that there's not enough people working on these projects. I'm told that there is, for each validator within Western Power, when you bring a project, uh, an allocation of up to 60 businesses or projects for a single person. That's not enough. We're going through an amazing period of growth here in Western Australia. We need to make sure that Western Power can assist and facilitate that growth rather than impede it. I've spoken to farmers in the Great Southern Region who've alleged that there's inadequate maintenance staff working at Western Power. Is this a broader issue of there not being enough people to maintain and expand WA's power network? I think certainly you've seen uh, the issues over the summer in terms of the blackouts we saw not only in the Perth metropolitan area, but it's a regular feature of regional uh, communities seeing blackouts and poor maintenance. Uh, It's an issue that the opposition has raised both in the parliament on a regular basis. We've seen the inquiry handed down uh, that the, the government conducted, which points to the fact that there is significant issues in terms of maintenance and spending. That's something this government must address. We cannot have a six to eight billion dollar surplus being delivered at this upcoming state budget and not have the basics like our power system not working. State Opposition Leader Mia Davies speaking to Angus McIntosh. Western Power says the operator is experiencing supply chain constraints for items such as transformers, switch gear and metering units, resulting in unanticipated delays of up to 180 days for some projects. It says there's also been an increase in the volume of high-complexity projects which require input from specialist resources, which has led to delays in the assessment of these project types. Western Power is taking measures to improve wait times by outsourcing some design work and it's calling on customers to enter early undertaking contracts to procure long-lead items early in the process. Couple of minutes to one here on the Country Hour to the markets now to Mount Barker, where 513 cattle were yarded for sale today. That's down 22 head on last week's sale. Tracy Kilner has been keeping an eye on things for you. Tracy, can you go through the details? Another small yarding offered with feedlotters keen to secure the quality steers offered. Wiener steers gained in all weight categories and heavier Wiener heifers eased while quality Angus Simmental heifers going back to the paddock returned 638 cents a kilo. Limited trade cattle were presented, while the heavy cows and bulls gained with demand. Wiener steers again dominated the yarding, with heavyweights over 330 kilos selling from 640 to 696 cents a kilo. Medium weight and lightweight steer calves sold from 632 up to 722 cents for the lighter weights. Heavy Wiener heifers made 570 to 632 cents. Medium weights returned 540 to 588 cents. And the lightweight heifers sold from 560 to 638 cents a kilo. Yearling steers gained on quality and demand, selling from 420 to 650 cents. And the yearling heifers returned 520 to 606 cents, quality dependent. A small yarding of heavy prime cows gained on last week, selling from 300 to 348 cents, medium weight cows made 318 cents, and the store cows returned 260 to 280 cents to processors, and from 190 to 378 cents to feeder and restocker buyers. 
Heavy bulls gained, selling for 3.20 to 3.22 cents, and lightweight bullies made from 3.50 to 506 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Tracy. News is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.